Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Matthew Ladner, the Director of the Arizona Center for Student Opportunity at the Arizona Charter Schools Association and a Senior Fellow with EdChoice. He is the author of a new report titled Microschools Versus Waitlists, a guidebook for the innovative Arizona educator, which is the subject of today's conversation. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. So let's start with this. Probably most of our listeners are already familiar with this microschools concept, but I imagine that some still aren't. So what is a microschool and what are the differences between a, a microschool and a learning pod, a panic pod? There's a lot of these different terms. So guide us. Yeah, like we have a whole section in the study about like, you know, a taxonomy of, uh, of microschools. I mean, the main form microschools are taking is very small groups of students. You know, usually here in Arizona, at least it's eight to 12 with an in-person teacher or guide and usually are, are, but not always making use of digital learning resources, but that's how I would describe it. I don't know if it's much of a definition. All right. And so why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you actually have seen in Arizona in terms of microschooling? Arizona seems to be ground zero for a lot of innovation in education. So what's the microschool scene like in AZ? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it started well before the pandemic here. And the most prominent microschools firm here in Arizona is Prenda. It was started by a gentleman named Kelly Smith, who was running coding clubs for his own children and other children out of libraries in Mesa, Arizona. And he's described how he noticed a lot of these kids were like totally into coding, but would talk about just how much they hated school and how much, you know, and he kind of said, well, we can do better than that, right? And so when the pandemic struck, Brenda was already at 700 students in micro schools here in Arizona. And probably the one of, not the only, but one of the really fascinating things about Brenda is, is that they, they scaled up to about 4,200 students, you know, after the pandemic struck very quickly. Normally, you know, a charter management organization or, you know, a private school network or, or, you know, anything of the sort to have an enrollment increase at that size would require, you know, either millions of dollars in facility debt and construction or, you know, renting out a lot of space. Nationwide charter schools spend about 15% of their total revenue on facilities in one form or another, whether it's debt financing or, or renting space. Prento scaled up very quickly without doing either of those things. And so it clearly constitutes sort of a fascinating model for the charter groups or, or private schools potentially, potentially that have a you know, wait list of students that they're not able to serve. And so Prenda had a, you know, about a six-fold increase in just over a year. Obviously, a lot of that had to do with the pandemic, although they were already going gangbusters, right? I think in just in two years, they went from about seven kids to 700 kids. Right. But what do you think is, explains the dramatic growth in Arizona? I visited Perinda campus and my uh, instant reaction watching the kids do 
you know, sort of project-based learning is, is that this looks like a lot of fun, right? Like my snap judgment was like, I would not hesitate for a second to put my own daughter into apprentice school, right? I think that the model they have, which is basically they meet in person, they meet and sometimes in, you know, informal spaces, you know, like a library or a church campus, but other times at people's homes, they do sort of self-paced digital learning, but together in community, and then they break and then they tend to, to work on project-based learning. And the project-based learning is kind of the secret sauce, in my opinion. When you walk into it, it's like obvious that the kids are totally into it and having a lot of fun. And I've seen a lot of educators react to similar schools and kind of say, well, why can't we do this? This is why I went into education in the first place. And so I think that the model certainly has the potential to sort of recapture that one-room schoolhouse kind of vibe. So it's usually about five to 12 kids, and they call the three phases conquer, collaborate, and create. So conquer is the kids usually using an online platform like Khan Academy or Lexia to do, for the most part, math and English language arts. And then during the collaborate and create phases, they're usually working together, and the projects can range from you know, history, science, art, all sorts of different things. But in each case, the children are going at their own pace. If they want to go faster, they want to go slower, you know, they get to pick which area they're studying. They get to choose what the project is, you know, so it sounds very loosey-goosey. Sounds like, you know, glorified summer camp. Are these kids actually learning? Do we have any evidence that there's learning going on here? We do. Brenda was kind enough to share their formative assessment data from the previous school year and to allow us to publish it in the study. There are scattered, you know, around the country, you know, a little bit of formative assessment data here and there. There's the Southern Nevada project, you know, that's been able to publish formative assessment data. Great Hearts from Texas uh, published some formative assessment data. Just to clarify, you're talking about formative assessment data for other types of micro school oh, groups. Oh, so, yeah. so in, in uh, Great Hearts in Texas now is running sort of a micro school project in addition to their traditional charter school classrooms. In Southern Nevada, you're talking about Southern Nevada Urban Micro School Academy or SNUMA. Right. They have some formative assessment data, but it's a very small sample size. Very, I mean, very small I think sample size. Fewer so. than 100 or 200 kids. Right. So Prinda, on the other hand, had 4,200 students. They literally had, you know, before and after testing, you know, from the beginning of the fall semester last year to the end of the fall semester. In the study, we lay out, you know, a number of caveats that we have to take about this data. Really only have, as a comparison, a full year of data using the same tests. But when you look at the results, the question is, is there evidence that you know, the apprentice students were making learning gains? The answer is yes. Um, there's clear evidence of learning gains. And having said that, this is very early. We have a very limited amount of information from only, you know, three micro school projects at this point. Over time, we'll have a far more complete picture. 
But, you know, I, I think the most interesting thing is that, that parents are not waiting around for this, right? Like, like um, nor would I, right? Like, I mean, again, like when I walked in, I actually got to see a Brenda Micro School in San Carlos, Arizona, out on the Apache Nation. And when I got there, the kids were doing 3D print design as their project. So, um, you know, in time, all will be revealed about the academics. We do know a little bit of data right now, and what we know is promising, but parents aren't waiting, and neither are teachers, right? One of the things we discuss from your own ed choice polling is just how wildly popular pods are amongst teachers. I want to get into that teacher thing first, but let's, um, I want to stay on the student assessment data because it's really mind-blowing. So first of all, they were not creaming, right? I mean, anybody that wants to join can join. And actually a lot of kids, um, I should take a step back and say, how do kids access these micro schools? Well, in Arizona, some kids are accessing them using their education savings accounts, paying for it that way. In some cases, they've had partnerships with public schools where they have a public school classroom. The kids are counted as public school students, but they're running essentially Prenda in a public school, a traditional public school. And I think the majority of kids right now are accessing as an online charter. Now, they will have the AZ merit scores at some point. As of when this podcast was recorded, they weren't available yet. But a majority of the children that are in grades K through five, when they started Prenda, they were below grade level. 56% started below grade level. And then the test later in the year, I think the spring 2021 test, is that right? No, this would have uh, been the end of the fall. The end of the fall, that's right, after, after one semester. So after one semester, they cut in half the number of students, more than in half, the number of students that were below grade level. So it went from 56% below grade level to only 24% below grade level. Meanwhile, the students who were above grade level, they started only 4% of children started Prenda above grade level. By the end of the semester, 34% were above grade level in grades K through five. That's just astounding. And then you've got a lot of data. I won't go through all of it, but you know, for grades six to eight, they breaks it down a little finer. There's uh, reading comprehension, grammar, word study, et cetera. But let's just take reading comprehension. So there were 15% of kids started below grade level. They cut that down to 6%, you know, so they basically a third of the kids. They started 34% above grade level. By the end of the semester, 54% were above grade level. That's a nearly 60% increase, 20 percentage point increase. And now a majority are above grade level. That, that's absolutely astounding. It's very promising. I do want to just, again, sound a, a bit of a note of caution that, you know, like this was during a pandemic. Um, it was a very strange time. I'm not at all surprised the kids started off below grade level because most of these kids were coming from, you know, a situation where they had been, you know, forced into impromptu digital learning and all the rest of that stuff. There's clear evidence of academic gains during that semester, and it's very promising, and, and, and we'll be studying this a lot more over time. The note of caution is well taken, but... The Wall Street Journal just highlighted this McKinsey report, which shows massive learning loss, right? 
that schools that switched to digital. Now, this isn't this isn't a, a knock against digital, right? There's a huge difference between online learning in a program that was intentionally designed to be online versus, well, we're going to take what we do in the classroom and try to do it at home on a dime because of a pandemic, right? These are two totally different situations. But it seems that the vast majority of public schools, and actually, frankly, even private and charter schools, right, that tried to take what they do and do the same thing online have really struggled, and understandably so. They weren't designed to do this. This was an emergency situation, but there has been tremendous learning loss. Yet here is an organization that found a way to combine some amount of digital learning with in-person instruction, actually maybe too strong a word because uh, they, they intentionally don't have teachers, they have guides. But you're putting these children in a small classroom in person where they can focus on what they love, go at their own pace. And it doesn't, it seems like they're not wasting time. They're actually, at least the children who are in this program, the vast majority are not only catching up, but getting ahead of where they were before at a much faster pace than on average, than their peers who remained in a, you know, their assigned school system. Yeah, I think that one way to think about the microschool phenomenon, um, and of course, it's far broader than Arizona, right? I mean, the pandemic pods, millions of people did it around the country. But one way to think about it is, if you recall back like a decade ago, and or maybe a little more, when the, the first appearance of MOOCs, right, the massive open online courses appeared, you know, there was a Stanford uh, artificial intelligence master's level course that hundreds of thousands of people took. And the next thing you know, it was like, oh, there's only going to be five universities left when this is all over. And all of us are going to have, you know, six PhDs and, you know, things got away from us a little bit there. Right. And now, although MOOCs are still around and they're actually more important than ever in reality, right. It was just that, that sort of overhype stage. And, but where it like sort of crashed down in reality is that, you know, lots of people kind of looked at a lecture on a MOOC, but the completion rates were super low, right? The people sort of persisting. Okay, so one way to think about a micro school vis-a-vis -vis digital learning is what set of social institutions could make it so that you could actually realize more of the potential gains from digital learning, right? Like what's missing from, you know, the MOOCs take over the world story, community, classmates, in-person guidance from an adult, right? These things that most families desire, right? As a part of their education, right? So I think that the pandemic may have sort of sped up innovation in this front. It was bubbling before the pandemic, right? It may have sped things up about a decade and through sort of like, you know, like forced experimentation if nothing else, and I'm excited to see where this goes in the future. And as you noted, teachers seem to be excited about where this is going. What are the data on teacher interest in learning pods or microschools? So I actually quoted Ed Choice's fantastic survey of teachers on this, which found that a majority of teachers across sectors were either somewhat interested or very interested in teaching in a pod, right? And the percentage of charter school teachers was 86% were either somewhat interested or very interested. 
you know, the survey I'd really love to see you guys do next is former teachers, right? When you think about this in terms of a talent pipeline, every state has like a large group of people that used to be in teaching, a lot of whom grew frustrated with the profession, you know, for a whole variety of different reasons. And the possibility of getting some of them back involved in the sector in an education role, it could be a lot of fun, right? It is especially exciting to me because, you know, the, even before the pandemic, our normal pipeline for teachers were drying up. Enrollment in colleges of education around the country, for instance, was into a steep decline before COVID. I don't think COVID did anything to help that, right? It probably made it worse. So being able to offer teachers alternative models where they're more in control of their education communities and, you know, which can offer perhaps more of what really attracted them to the profession in the first place is something that I think that everyone should be very interested in, right? Because the, the, the old fashioned way of doing this was falling apart even before the pandemic. So look, parents are flocking to options like Prenda, at least early formative assessment data is stupendous. Teachers are apparently very interested in this type of model. People in Arizona must be celebrating. I mean, nobody could be complaining about this, right? <laughs> if only, right? Remember, Jason, no good deed goes unpunished in this wicked world. Um, there's been a lot of complaints from the usual suspects. And, you know, and in fact, there's a very prominent charter school critic, I guess you might call him, who filed complaints about Prenda with the state charter board and with the state attorney general and then the Arizona Republic wrote a front page story about it. Like, oh, oh my gosh, the attorney general of Arizona is investigating Prenda, you know. Mysteriously enough, they failed to write a story when both the charter board and the attorney general dismissed the complaint. You know, the, and the reality is, is that schools, uh, public schools, charter and districts are perfectly free in Arizona to, you know, the, the essence of the complaint was about subcontracting, right? Which everyone is free to do. In fact, we had examples in the pandemic of Arizona school districts subcontracting out the entire education of their kids to the Florida virtual school, right? Mysteriously enough, that didn't seem to generate an Arizona Republic story. So, you know, predictably, the people that don't like things like private school choice, and they don't like charter schools generally, they also don't like micro schools, right? But, you know, I don't think that, A, they don't have a substantive case, and B, they forgot to tell teachers because teachers absolutely love these things, right? And so oh, parents and, and teachers love them and our friends in the K-12 reactionary community don't. And we'll just have to kind of, you know, just move along. Yeah, and actually I recall during the pandemic that the Wall Street Journal got their hands on an opposition report produced by the National Education Association, the, the larger of the two national teachers unions, both on microschools generally and one specifically on Prenda, just warning about, you know, all the potential hazards that these organizations could cause for families. But what they were really saying is 
watch out, here comes the competition. Yeah, and you know, one of the things we talk about in the report is there are a whole set of equity issues and student safety issues that have been sorted through, right? I mean, when the pandemic pod hit the country, you know, last year, the first reaction against it was sort of this sort of violent, like, oh my God, this is horrible. It's so inequitable. Only rich people could do this, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, you know, when celebrity DJs showed up on People Magazine talking about the pods they created in their guest house in Beverly Hills, you know, it didn't exactly uh, help dissuade that, that stereotype, right? But the reality is, is that if you want to address the equity issues, potential equity issues that are very real in microschooling, it requires access to public funding, right? So for instance, who is paying the guide or the teacher? Are students provided with devices? Who pays for the internet access, right? You know, is there student testing going on? You know, all, all these sort of very basic things. So in Prenda's case, for instance, most of the kids are enrolling in an online charter school and then Prenda establishes the pods, but all their students, no matter how they're accessing public funds, all of Brenda's students are taking the state AZ merit exam, okay? And the ones going through the online charter school, those scores count against their accountability rating, right? And so now for the 7 million kids scattered around the country that did this on their own, there's none of that, right? Uh, who pays the guide? mom and dad do out of their wallet, right? You know, who provides digital access and computers? Well, mom and dad do out of their wallet, right? And then on, on student safety, you know, Brenda has a very well thought out set of protocols that are actually based on the state of Arizona's statute for in-home childcare facilities, right? So background checks, not only for the guide, but for any adult that might come in contact with the kids. So background checks, fingerprints, you know, smoke alarms, fire extinguishers. If the place they're operating in has a swimming pool, it has to have a fence. It has some additional safeguards about the internet filtering and things like that. So, you know, like while, you know, opponents are kind of like, oh my God, there's no telling how horrible and unsafe these things are. You know, the reality is these are practices that are not yet required in statute, right? Because micro-schooling took off so fast that regulations and whatnot are, you know, running behind actual practice. But anyone that's doing this stuff, these are common sense things that anyone that is operating in this space ought to do on their own volition, simply to keep the students safe, to hold the, the confidence of parents, and to stave off absurd regulation, which of course, you know, is a typical tool that opponents use is to try to like, you know, overreach for that stuff in order to hamstring possibility. Right. And, and lo and behold, you know, since these are institutions operating in a market, parents have a very high degree of concern for things like safety. And so the micro schools are actually making sure to meet those parents' concerns because otherwise the parents are going to go elsewhere if they think that, you know, sort of at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is safety. And so yeah. that's sort of a bottom line issue. And it seems that the micro schools are finding ways to 
make sure that that need is met first before they meet other needs. The report is titled Microschools versus Waitlists. What are these waitlists you're talking about and how do the microschools solve those waitlists? So a lot of Arizona charter schools receive more applications annually than they have seats to offer, right? State law requires us to hold a random process, which is usually a lottery, to determine who gets the seats and the kids that don't win the lottery are sitting on a wait list, right? And sometimes these wait lists can be like several times the size of the actual enrollment of the school, right? One of the biggest inhibitors to charter school growth and ability to serve waitlisted families is the need to raise facility funding, right? I mean, it literally can take millions to tens of millions of dollars to create a facility to educate, you know, less than a thousand kids, right? So depending on the details, obviously. So the possibility of charter operators taking a different approach in order to try to serve their waitlisted families is very appealing because this could be done and Prenda has kind of demonstrated it could be done. It's, it's possible to scale out without going into millions of dollars of facility debt. It's a different way of operating. And we, we offer a number of cautions in the study about, you know, I think operators need to be very thoughtful about creating something that is unique. I think that one of the things I'm hopeful that we will see in the years ahead is a more pluralistic set of micro schools that are available to people. In other words, you know, like different flavors, right? But how their model translates to the micro school you know, setting, do they want to try to run two different school models at the same time? These are not questions that I can answer or anyone else. This is something that the practitioners themselves have to figure out and they're a matter of art rather than science, right? But I think that the prospect of reaching students with a new type of offering that could easily become proximate to people, right? Because that's, that's what really matters to a family, right? It's like, what kind of options do they have within the area they can reasonably access right, to get their students there, okay? Here in Arizona, we've been expanding that since 1994. We have the nation's largest charter school sector. We have multiple private choice programs and our districts are very open and open enrollment compared to most states. Not coincidentally, I think Arizona also leads the nation in academic growth, right? We don't have the highest scores. Our kids learn the most per year in data compiled by Stanford University. So the more varied and proximate options that families can have, the more likely it is that families will find a good fit for the needs and interests of their individual child. So I think micro schools potentially have a very large role to play in expanding that menu of options for not just families in Arizona, but families around the country. So if there are charter school operators out there, or for that matter, private or other types of schools, or even just teachers or parents who are looking to form a micro school, what is your advice for them for how to do that? Well, I mean... You're signing up to be a pioneer, 
right? Um, people are literally learning by doing this as we speak. It's exciting. And one of the things that is very exciting about this, I talked to a Curtis Endorf from Great Hearts a few months ago, and he described uh, on a podcast not dissimilar from this one <laughs> about how the parents that Great Hearts has been interacting with are actively kind of shaping what the school model looks like, right? Is it going to meet every day or is it going to only meet, you know, less than, is it going full custodial or non-full custodial, right? It's really interesting. Parents do have a lot of different preferences and whatnot. And unlike anything I think we've ever seen before, they are actively shaping what this space looks like in partnership with providers, right? So it's incredibly exciting. And, you know, anyone that wants to get in the space, I, I, I would encourage them to, to read up. We wrote this study in the hopes of being a resource for those people who are thinking about this as a possibility. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot of different models. There's a lot we don't know yet, right? For instance, you know, different models use different techniques. Um, some are heavy with live instruction. Some are making use of more use of asynchronous tools, right? You know, I, I don't suspect that there's any one right answer, you know, in terms of like what that should look like. I suspect that it might have a lot to do with the type of education you're trying to provide, what grade level, what kind of focus, right? But ultimately, I think that this is a very exciting time that we've seen a great deal of innovation over the last two years. And I'm, I'm hopeful that 20 years from now, we'll be able to look back and, and clearly identify it as a turning point. Our guest today has been Dr. Matthew Ladner of the Arizona Center for Student Opportunity at the Arizona Charter Schools Association. His new report is Microschools versus Waitlists, a guidebook for the innovative Arizona educator. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Ideas series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at EdChoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.